You need this. I mean, we go six weeks to driver's ed, right? To learn to drive a car. Ain't nothing compared to marriage. (laughs) Right? Come on. So, I mean, we just, the church has just basically in the past said, God bless you, hallelujah, congratulations, and send them off. But we've learned that you need wisdom. So that class is at 11 o'clock. It's already begun. They started last Sunday, but it's not too late. And I encourage you to look at doing that. Last Sunday, there was a rush on Connection Point wanting the notes from last Sunday's message. God of Islam, God of the Bible, the difference. And so we did put it in note form now. And two bucks, that's all. It cares for the, uh, uh, pays for the paper and the printing. That's it. And this is the message verbatim with a couple of things I added to spice it up as if it needed it. <laughs> My, our security said, you let us know when that goes on the radio. Yeah. And not necessarily funny, but we're, we're making light of it. Now, here it is. So if you want it, they're going to have it at the connection point as soon as church is over. $2. This is the message. Give it to somebody. The, the truth needs to be told. It just does. So, all righty. Brendan, Finding the Rock, there you go. It's your last night. God bless everybody in Finding the Rock. And the rest of you, are you ready to go through 1 Thessalonians? Have you been reading ahead? I want to know, did somebody do something to this front row chairs? I need some people in the back to come on down. I'm going to sound like Bob Barker. Come on down. I mean, I just, it just looks strange. I promise I won't spit, spew, point, or get too close to you. There you go. I don't know. It's just a psychological thing. <laughs> Thank you, all of you. Boy, here comes a bunch of them. That's a great altar call. There we go. We had a saying, I want to be close to the spout where the glory comes out. I'm not saying it comes out of me, but I'm saying that there's something about the altar area, right? Okay, how many of you are ready to go through 1 Thessalonians? I'm excited about this series, and it's a great book. And let's have a prayer together and ask God to really speak to us. Father, we just thank you right now for your blessing on the house of God. And Lord, we approach your word with reverence. We approach your word with respect. And Lord, we thank you that you're here tonight to speak to us, to minister to us, to teach us, to build us up in the faith that we will successfully walk with God. Now, will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, tonight, I open my heart to the word of God. Speak to me in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, grab it, hold it up. Got your Bible? Now, how many of you have been reading ahead? 1 Thessalonians, great, great book. All right, I want to encourage you. You got in your hand your sword. That's the sword. The Word of God is your sword. The devil is deathly afraid of what you've got in your hand right there, if you know how to use it. So we're going to build you up in that Word. Thank you. You can be seated, and let's, uh, let's move on. The whole book of 1 Thessalonians has to do with the Lord is coming back. That's sort of the overall theme. So I want you to say with me like you really believe it, the Lord is coming back. I mean, he is. And so the Apostle Paul really, really focuses on it. But let me just kind of go over a a few 
quick overall facts about 1 Thessalonians, and I hope you got a pen in your hand and you have a Bible that's not too holy to mark in. My Bible has been marked up, torn up, ripped up, um, not intentionally, but it's old, and I've had to get it recovered. And of course, I got a bunch of different Bibles, but I've got a favorite one. It has all my wedding notes, funeral notes, encouraging notes. Uh, it's just all marked up. You ought to have different colored pens. You ought to, every time you read your Bible, have something to write with and write down what it says to you. Now, 1 Thessalonians is one of the oldest books in the New Testament. Guess how early that book is? 18 years or so after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. 1 Thessalonians was written. It's one of the shortest books in the New Testament. It contains 79 verses. That's it. You can read it in 30 minutes. So you ought to go home tonight and just read it. Matter of fact, if you could read it, the whole thing, once a week, while we're in this, it will bless you. It'll bless you. Just read the whole 1 Thessalonians once a week while we're in it. Okay? It's one of the easiest books to understand. Everything Paul writes is simple, clear, and direct. It's a short letter to a very young church. It's one of the most practical books in the New Testament. In five short chapters, he deals with, and I want you to read these again with me, would you? He deals with conversion, integrity, compassion, the Word of God, heavenly rewards, suffering, prayer, moral purity, hard work, the second coming of Christ, the role of spiritual leaders, dealing with difficult people. Say with me, there's none of those in my life. And testing spiritual gifts. All of that in one book. We're going to look at it. Now, here's a little bit of the background of 1 Thessalonians. Following the planting of the church at Philippi, Paul proceeded to Thessalonica. Founded in 316 B.C., that's Thessalonica. Thessalonica was so named by Alexander the Great after one of his sisters. Now, it was a busy and an important town, unlike Colossae, which was kind of out of the way. Thessalonica was a major area. It had a mixed population of Romans and Greeks and Jews. But more than that, it was situated on the Via Ignatia, meaning it's a great highway that linked Rome with the whole region to the north of the Aegean Sea. In other words, it was a huge mixmaster. They had a road that was as busy and important and all of that as what we would call a mixed master today or a major highway. So Thessalonica was strategically placed on a well-traveled interstate. And so when Paul saw it, he said, there's got to be a church here. This is a happening spot. People are coming and going all the time. We've got to have a church here. So he started preaching. Now, as was his custom... Paul preached both inside and outside the local synagogue. This man, who I love more and more, the more I study him, he gets a bad rap, of course, in our day, called a chauvinist pig and all these other things because we don't understand what he said about women and about women in ministry and women in general. And so he gets called names, but what an incredible Christian. In my mind, never a better Christian ever in the history of the church. I don't care who you name. Paul outran them all. Now, what he would do is he would walk right into a synagogue 
and preach something that most of them had never heard, the gospel of Jesus. His rule was always to go to the Jew first. So he'd walk right into the synagogue and somehow get their attention and just let it go. And he would preach the gospel. Okay? Now, he, Silas, and Timothy, who at that time was a new young convert, who had joined the missionary team at Lystra, first tried to win the Jews to Christ. He always went to his kinsmen first. That's where he went. Now, Acts 17, verse 5 and 7 tell us that they became the guests of a Jew who bore a Greek name, Jason. Now, in the synagogue at Thessalonica, Paul sought, and we're told this in Acts 17, he sought to prove to the Jews that it was necessary for the Christ to have suffered and risen again from the dead. Here's what I noticed about Paul. He never preached that he didn't preach the resurrection of Jesus. He was a resurrection preacher. He knew nothing about calling Jesus a good man or a good teacher or, you know, an inspirational personality. Oh, no. Anywhere he went, he preached resurrection. Not just of Jesus Christ, but that we as believers would one day be resurrected. You can't hear Paul without hearing him say, not only did he rise from the dead, but those of you that have put your faith in him, one day you're coming up out of the grave. That was Paul's message. So he said to them, it was necessary for Christ to have suffered and risen again from the dead. At that time, a few Jews believed, along with a wave of Gentiles, with a number of also high-ranking who's who women in Thessalonica. Now, the Jewish religious community blew their stack, greatly resented this, got jealous, got envious, and they stirred up the rabble. They stirred up the gullible. And a mob stormed Jason's house. You almost wanted to say to Jason, welcome to the faith. Because this is what happened right off the bat. A mob stormed his house. And he and some of the other new Christians were hauled before the authorities. And apparently Jason and the others were forced to pledge that Paul would leave town. So, you know, Paul, being a gentleman, he, he, he packed his bags and he left. He left this young, embryonic church. He left behind a young one, a young church, but a potent church. The members were mostly comprised of Gentiles, that be you and me. Do I have any real, 100% real born Jews in here? Okay, turn to your neighbor and say, see, you're a Gentile. All right, and thank God the gospel came to us, amen? amen? All right, now, mostly Gentiles and mostly slaves and craftsmen. So you had in there silversmiths and carpenters and what we would call blue-collar laborers in this church. Now, Paul was very concerned about leaving these new Christians so soon, especially with so many enemies watching them and looking for a reason to throw them in jail. And, and that's what they were born again into, that atmosphere. So he likely left Timothy at Thessalonica to help them in their walk. And later, Timothy would report to Paul the good news of the Thessalonians' dynamic spiritual growth. I mean, they grew spiritually in a beautiful and awesome way. In response, he wrote his first apostolic epistle 
and that is 1 Thessalonians. He wrote it in response to the good report he'd gotten from Timothy about their walk, even though he'd left them so early on. At this time, Paul was around 46 years old. When I, when I know that, and I think of what he wrote, and where his mind had gone, the man was brilliant, under the control of the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest intellectuals of all time, but under the control of the Holy Spirit. Because what he wrote at 46 is amazing. Now, unusually for Paul, we're going to see that 1 Thessalonians doesn't contain one Old Testament quote. Anywhere else you find his writings, he's going to pull from the Old Testament, but he doesn't hear. The certainty of Christ's return is the predominant theme. That's what he wanted them to be comforted with. Now, he begins with his standard greeting. Chapter 1, verse 1. Can we read it together? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, catch this, everybody. Little could these recipients, the Thessalonians of this letter, little could they believe or understand or grasp that they weren't just listening to the words of a man, but they were receiving Scripture. Not just a letter from Paul, but inspired, inerrant, infallible truth. In fact, a brand new Bible book. They didn't know that, but God did. Because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. So here you've got the first New Testament epistle, and they received the very inspired Word of God through one of God's great apostles. Moved on by the Holy Ghost, as the Bible tells us. How did we get the Word of God? Holy men of old were moved on by the Holy Spirit. And what they wrote was not like automatic writing where they were a robot, but they were moved on and carried along and borne along by the Spirit of God so that what they wrote was God breathed right down to every jot and tittle, comma and period. That book, 1 Thessalonians, has endured through the centuries to be read by hundreds of millions from every race, color, and creed. I don't think Paul had any idea that that would be the case. But what an amazing God we serve. Amen? Now, something else was brand new. This was a book of the Bible for Gentiles, not Jews. It would be placed alongside Moses' Pentateuch, David's Psalms, and Daniel's apocalyptic scroll, but it was to the Gentiles. It was to a primarily overwhelmingly Gentile church. So God stepped over the line like the veil was rent in half when Jesus died. God saying, whosoever will, let him come into the Holy of Holies by the blood of the Lamb. Jew, Gentile, male, female, no matter the skin color, no matter the education, no matter the, the financial standing, if you're covered in the blood, you can walk through and walk into the Holy of Holies and enjoy the Shekinah presence of God. So now God is saying, I'm going to speak to the Gentiles. And he did in 1 Thessalonians. This was unprecedented in God's dispensation of Holy Scripture. The church at Thessalonica 
was uniquely united with both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it might look small, this little bitty church that Paul left. You know, uh, it wasn't like this. I'm sure there were not this many people in it at that time. It looked contemptible to the world, but it was a formidable foe to the powers of darkness because Jesus had said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Now, birthed in the oven of red-hot persecution with its founder departing early on, it weathered the storm. And more than that, it didn't just survive, it thrived. And you know what? You and me, we're not just going to survive, we're going to thrive. As you walk in God, walk in the Spirit, walk and abide in the vine, you will not just survive, you will thrive. Now, Paul's opening statement reminds the Thessalonians that Jesus is, this is very important, he's co-eternal, he's co-equal, and he's co-existent with the Father. Now, I've told you often in the last few months, and I'm going to tell you again tonight, any cult, you know that a cult is a cult when they take away from that right there. They take away from the co-eternal, co-equal, and co-existent reality of Jesus Christ with the Father. They marginalize, downgrade, minimize the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what every cult does. Islam does it. Buddhism does it. Of course, Buddhism predated Christ, but Buddhism knows nothing of the real God. Any cult, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, any of them, you know they're a cult because of what they do with Jesus. Look what he said. He said, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says it again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are together. They are one. That's why Jesus said, me and my Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus never rebuked somebody for calling him God. We may forget, forget this fact, and we do in the modern church, in the Western church of today. Oh, Lord, help us. We're allowing all kinds of things to be done to the name and the person of Jesus Christ. It angers me with a righteous anger. It makes me want to stand up. I wish I could grab a microphone that will go to the whole world and tell them, Who has bewitched you? Because Jesus Christ was very God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was very God. Well, the devil hates the Word of God. He hates what you've got in your hand right there. He hopes you don't learn it. So we're going to give the devil heaven tonight. <laughs> All right? Now, ha having driven Paul out of Thessalonica through persecution, here's what the devil did. He always overplays his hand. He unwittingly opened another floodgate of blessing to the church. Paul began to write. He had not written until the devil drove him out of Thessalonica. And you know what? He does that all the time. He did it when he, when he moved the crowd to crucify Jesus. When he moved the crowd to crucify Jesus, he sealed his own doom and fate. Now, Soon, 
Another 27 books would be added to the Word of God and 14 of those 27 from Paul's pen. Now next we see Paul's act of prayer life. Read this with me, would you? Chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God, how often? Always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Now one thing you could count on, if Paul knew you, if he knew of you, or you were saved under his ministry, your name would be brought before the throne of God regularly. That man brought names before God and said, Lord, be with them. Strengthen them. Don't let them slip. Don't let them slide. Don't let them walk away. Seal them. Raise them up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. I pray for their maturity in Jesus. He prayed for you. He named your name. Now verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Now notice those three favorite words of his. You see it there? Faith. Love, hope. In another place, faith, hope, and love. He said, I'm remembering always that you had a work of faith. And I'm remembering your labor of love. And I'm also remembering constantly your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the very sight of our God and Father. Now I want you to notice those words again, faith and love and hope. And look at the adjective he puts in front of each one of them. They had a work, and that word work comes from a Greek word meaning task. They had their task. They had, they had a, an assignment that God had given each of them. And I want us to realize tonight that God has given each of us an assignment. We have an assignment. Now, I'm not saying you're called a full-time ministry. I'm not saying that at all. That's a minority of people in the sense of like what I do, a pastor of a full-time of a church. But we're all called to full-time glorify God. And we're called to full-time think of, now, whatever I do in life, my assignment is to shine. It's to witness. It is to do the task that God has given me. So they had a task. And it was propelled by faith, not duty, not coercion, but faith. And then they had a labor. Now, that word labor is different from work. Labor means fatigue, weariness. They, they were laboring to the point of fatigue and weariness. And he said, but here's what keeps on carrying you. It's a labor strengthened by love. So where some people would quit, you don't quit because your labor is being propelled by love. So you've got a task that is propelled by faith, a labor propelled by love, and you've also got a hope. Hope, hope simply means this. I know something good is coming down the road. That's what hope is. I know something good is coming down the road. Christians ought to wake up in the morning and say, all right, a new day. This is the day the Lord has made. There is no telling what he's going to do in my life today, but I do know I serve a good God, and I've got hope. Seriously. They had a hope, a future prospect, and that was held by the power of patience. So they had a task mixed with faith, a labor mixed with love, and they had a hope held together by patience. That's the way we ought to be living. 
faith, hope, love, work, labor, hope. That's the way we ought to live. Faith-filled labor, love-driven weariness, and patient hope. That's how the Thessalonians lived and grew. That's how they grew. Now next, Paul drops a million-dollar theological word on them, and I'm, here I go. I've, I've got to deal with it because it's here. Some of you know the word. You could pick it out of this verse. So pick it out for me. What's it going to be? Election. Read verse 4 with me. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now turn to your neighbor and tell him, you were elected. Now turn on the other side and say, you were selected. Now turn back to the first one and say, now that means God likes you. Elected, selected, chosen. Now watch this. What does it mean? There's probably not very many words in the history of the world that have caused more dispute, more controversy, more trouble, more thought, more debate than election. It comes from a Greek word, eklage, and I put it there just so you could see it, and I transliterated it, eklage. It means simply to choose, to, to select. Now let me tell you what that does not mean. It does not mean that some were elected or chosen to be saved, while others were elected or chosen to be lost, which some teach. And I've never been able to understand how you can come to that if you look at the rest of the Word of God. But let me be real clear. That is not what elected means. Well, I think I'll save this one and damn that one. I think I'm just going to choose that one to be saved and choose that one to go to hell forever and ever Worlds without end, torment without stopping, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched? No way. You can't reconcile that with a God of love. All right? Then what does it mean? The Holy Spirit makes it crystal clear that divine election is based solidly on God's foreknowledge. Listen to Simon Peter, who says that believers are the, this is 1 Peter 1, 2, believers are the elect according to what, everyone? The foreknowledge of God the Father. Well, what does that mean? Foreknowledge comes from the Greek word prognosis. Can you believe that? Prognosis. What's my prognosis? Well, actually, the Greek word is uh, foreknowledge. Foreknowledge simply means that God knows a thing is going to happen, differentiates all other beings from God. Only God can know the end of a thing before the beginning begins. And that's what Isaiah is telling us. From ancient times, I know things that are not yet done. He knows nations. He knows people. He knew the Babylonians were going to come on the scene before they ever did. He knew Alexander the Great was going to be born before he ever was. He knew the Greeks were going to take over. He knew the Medes and the Persians were going to take over. He knows the end of America. All other beings from God, only God, can know the end of a thing before the beginning begins. And that's what Isaiah is telling us. From ancient times, I know things that are not yet done. He knows nations. He knows people. 
He knew the Babylonians were going to come on the scene before they ever did. He knew Alexander the Great was going to be born before he ever was. He knew the Greeks were going to take over. He knew the Medes and the Persians were going to take over. He knows the end of America tonight. He knew the beginning of God. Only God can know the end of a thing before the beginning begins. And that's what Isaiah is telling us. From ancient times, I know things that are not yet done. He knows nations. He knows people. He knew the Babylonians were going to come on the scene before they ever did. He knew Alexander the Great was going to be born before he ever was. He knew the Greeks were going to take over. He knew the Medes and the Persians were going to take over. He knows the end of America tonight. He knew the beginning at the very beginning when they signed the declaration. He knew the end of it. My counsel shall stand, God says, and I will do all my pleasure. I know from ancient times things that aren't yet done. That's where prophecy comes in. That's why the book of Revelations is so sobering. Because the book of Revelations tells us what's going to happen in the very end of time when the final grains of sand are going through the hourglass of time. God has already told us exactly how it's all going to come down. And we're not even there yet. But God knows it. And that's why the Bible is so powerful, so potent, so beautiful, so valuable. Because you can read it and get a real good idea. A lot of what's happening in the Middle East right now doesn't surprise me. Why? Because I know a prophet. His name is God and his son was Jesus Christ. And the prophet that I know and the Bible I know has told me a lot of things that I see right now coming together in the Middle East when God prophesied that there would be a Russia before a Russia even existed and what would happen with Babylon what would happen with Iran and Iraq and Egypt and Libya and Jerusalem and Israel all of that God has already nailed it he knows the end before the beginning starts that's why I say God never says, well, I'll be. <laughs> or, oops. God never says, well, I'll be. You got saved. You thought it was a big deal. You thought God was shocked. He didn't say, well, he said, I knew you were coming all the time. <laughs> right? Now watch. So here's the doctrine of foreknowledge. The doctrine of foreknowledge says that the moment we choose Christ, God already knew we were coming. Because he already knew, he also chose us in Christ to walk in his purposes and bring forth fruit for him. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say you sent out an invitation as God to a great feast. Now, being God, you already know who's going to attend and who's going to turn it down. You already know. When John Smith doesn't come, you knew John Smith wasn't coming. And when Susie Q shows up, you knew Susie Q was coming. So you prepare the meat, the vegetables, pastries, bread, and so forth for the ones that you already know are coming. When the time comes and they ring the doorbell, ding dong, you choose to let them into the house. They chose to come. You chose to let them in. Then you seat them for the great meal. There's not one empty place. 
because you knew the ones that were going to turn it down. You prepared for the feast for the ones you already knew were coming. Now look at Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father. This is verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he what? Chose us in him before the creation of the world. Say what? How could he choose us before the creation of the world? Because God is an awesome God who sees the end of a thing before the beginning begins. So he already knew after the world was created, he would go through all the Old Testament and there would be the failure of Adam and Eve and all of the different things that would take place because of that catastrophic fall. He knew uh, that he would set in the, the temple and all of the sacrifices and all of the feasts and the blood sacrifices and the Day of Atonement and all these things and deliver the people out of Egypt. He was shooting for the whole Old Testament is a signpost pointing towards the new. He knew that Jesus Christ would come and die and rise from the dead and he knew that you would be in him. Now, that's amazing. Now, so, so because he knew, he cho chose you in him to enjoy the feast. In love, he did what? Predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood. That's why there's no other way there. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. He lavished grace on us. Crazy grace. Catch that. Having foreknown that we would be ringing the doorbell, he predestined, pre-prepared the feast of salvation and all that comes along with it, the Holy Spirit the blessings, the walk, abiding in the vine, redemption, grace, inner strength, inner peace, all the things that are salvation. He prepared the feast before us ahead of time because he knew we were already coming. Like there's a door right here. On this side of the door, it says, whosoever will, let him come. So I see that. Wow, whosoever will, let him come. So I said, that sounds like a good deal to me. I accept Jesus. I open the door. I walk through and I shut it. And I see this beautiful greenery and forest and birds and singing and sunshine. And I turn around. And on the other side of the door, it says, I knew you were coming all the time. Right? Now, we cannot say that God has endowed us with a will and then say that we can't exercise our will in relation to our decision for Christ. God created people, not puppets, and people have wills of their own. If God had wanted robots, he'd have made robots, but he didn't make robots. He gave us a will and put one tree out there to test it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we chose to go against God. I know this is heavy stuff, but all we really need to know is God knew we were coming, prepared a feast for us, knowing that we were coming, he chose us in him. This is the kind of mind-boggling stuff that 46-year-old Paul received from God. Now, verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but it came in what? 
power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. He says, Paul, Paul was brilliant and could have blown the Thessalonians away with high-sounding verbiage and fancy eloquence, but it wasn't his education, it wasn't his powerful personality, his forceful arguments that brought the spectacular results that followed his preaching everywhere that he went. It was the Holy Spirit. From start to finish, everything about Christianity is supernatural. A virgin's womb is the beginning. An empty tomb is the end. It is supernatural. Paul says that his words were accompanied with the power of the Holy Spirit and also in much assurance. You know what I know right now? My words are accompanied with the power of the Holy Spirit. You know why I know that? Because I'm preaching the God-breathed word. So there is, it's not just a normal conversation we're having here. Someone else is in this room empowering what I'm saying. And he's the Holy Spirit. We watch him work every week. Now, he also said, the words that I came to you or brought to you came in much assurance. Paul preached for three Sabbaths in Thessalonica. Countless people were saved. He was as confident that God would produce spectacular results in Thessalonica as Elijah was when he called down fire from heaven. He knew if I preach this gospel, there's going to be results. If I declare the blood of Jesus, there's going to be salvation. If I really preach the word as it is to men as they are, they're going to come. I'm confident of that. And you ought to be confident of that. Now next, Paul points to the way, the way the Thessalonians received Christ. Verses 6 and 7, can you read it with me? And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all of Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Now, to follow Paul was to follow Christ because Paul himself so closely followed Christ. I don't know many people who could say, follow me and the peace of God will be with you. Follow the way I live and the peace of God will be with you. But Paul did. He said, watch the way I live. Watch the way I conduct my life. Watch my lifestyle and model yourself after it. And the peace of God's going to be with you. And the God of that peace is going to be with you. How could he say that? Because I'm walking so tight with Jesus. I'm modeling my life after him. He had so learned how to live the, the Christ life that he could safely encourage his converts to follow him. And the Thessalonians received the word in much affliction, mingled with joy. I read last week that every five minutes there's a martyr, somebody martyred in our world, primarily by those of the Islamic faith. Every five minutes, for no other reason but that they're Christians, period. Every five minutes, there's another martyr. Every five minutes. So since I've been teaching tonight, at least six to seven people have been martyred, killed, murdered, executed, because they would not renounce Christ. Now look, he says these Thessalonians received the word in much affliction. It was not like a raw paganism,
They recognize that Christianity is alien to this world. Do you know that? I hope you know that. Because the Bible says if you're the friend of the world, you're the enemy of God. They recognize that Christianity is alien to this world, that the world is our enemy. It murdered God's son. It persecutes the church. In Paul's day, Christians had to confront raw paganism, Greek intellectualism, Roman totalitarianism, and Jewish intolerance immediately, right out of the chute. That's what they encountered. Immediately, persecution knocked on their door. Haul off to jail, haul before authorities, life threatened, job threatened, families torn apart, Saul of Tarsus right in the big middle of it. The man that wrote this was a big part of it before he was saved, as you all know. So Paul says, but the Thessalonians responded to persecution with joy. Joy in the Holy Ghost. You know, joy is an inside job. Happiness requires a happening. Joy is rooted in God. In doing so, they became examples to believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Examples, uh, the word examples is the word tupos, and it literally means types. They became types. Well, of what? It's used of, to, of the print of the nails in the hands of Jesus. When Jesus said, go ahead, Thomas, put your hand in the, in the nail holes in my hands and in my side. That's how they were that real. They, they were there from nails. It suggests a mold, a pattern, a model. And the Thessalonians became model believers because instead of shriveling and shrinking and running from persecution, they just rejoiced that they were worthy to be persecuted in the name of Jesus. They became model believers. Verses 8 through 9 now says, For from you... The word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Paul's amazed at these people. He says, I can't tell you how thrilled I am by Timothy's report. Not only did you rejoice when you were persecuted, but then you turned right around and you became so bold that your faith has covered the known world. People are talking about you. You know, you can either be famous or infamous. He said, I don't need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. These people got saved inside out every which way but loose. Every idol that was in their life, they got rid of it. They were radical and, you know, we might as well be radical. Everything else is radical. Everything else is coming out of the closet. Why don't we? Right? So, these people were radical for Jesus. Radical. And so, Paul's bragging on for that. And sounded forth. When he says, you sounded forth, he refers to the sounding of a herald's trumpet. The Thessalonians were trumpeting the word of the Lord. They told everybody. They were fearless, focused, and fiery in their witness of Christ Jesus. They were not timid. They were not retiring. They were not in a closet somewhere. They were not believing to be a silent witness. 
I've often wondered how that works. Ooh, I know it's just oozing out of my pores, Jesus. There comes a time when you got to say it. And this is what they did. They trumpeted the word of God. They were fearless, focused, and fiery. Now, finally, chapter 1 closes with the theme of the book, the return of Christ. And I'm going to talk about the return of Christ much more next week. The two different kinds. What confused the Jews back then and confuses them to this day. But read verse 10 with me. Paul says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from what? So, folks, wrath cometh. Do you know that? Paul said, I see. It's like seeing a tsunami coming. You know it's coming. You see that huge black wall of water, 20, 30, 40 feet high. You know it's coming. How in the world am I going to dodge that? He says, I see the wrath of God coming on this world. And for the believer, there's going to be a deliverance. We're waiting for his son who's going to come from heaven, the one he raised from the dead. And Jesus is going to deliver us from the wrath that is coming. The word wait, and I'm going to close with this, the word wait occurs only here. The Greek word translated into wait in this verse, occurs only right here in the New Testament in verse 10. It describes a servant's eager waiting for his wages. How many of you look forward to that paycheck? <laughs> Come on. Especially if the bills are due and, you know, your gas is, uh, you know, got about an eighth of a tank left. And if they don't give you that check, you don't know what you're going to do. You're waiting. That's the word. Or it's used to describe the longing of, of an afflicted person for deliverance. Paul is saying, it can be translated to wait up. How many of you parents have ever waited up for your kids to get home? They had a curfew, and there is an hour, two hours, three hours, and you're waiting up. Every little noise, maybe that's them. That's the way we ought to be waiting for Jesus to come back. The Thessalonians were saved, and they were waiting up for God's Son from heaven. Now, next time, we're going to look at the Lord's coming back, a stimulating truth. Let's stand up together, can we? Give yourselves a hand. You did great. We covered a lot of stuff tonight. Amen. How many of you are waiting up for Jesus to come back? Waiting up. And are you thankful for that blood that is going to deliver us from the certain wrath that is coming upon this world. Father, we thank you for the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Lord God, for the encouraging testimony of these Thessalonians who didn't bow, didn't back down, didn't break, didn't bend, but they faced that fiery persecution and trumpeted the word of the Lord. And you carried their testimony around the world. And thank you, Lord, for this amazing Apostle Paul who gave us this first new book, new epistle, 